Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. Uh, today we're going to be talking about chlorinated chicken, among other things, but before we do any of that, thank you for getting in touch with us on Twitter, and also thank you for leaving us those iTunes reviews. We really do appreciate them, and it just helps helps spread the word to other people about the stuff that we're doing over here. Talking of over here, I am in Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce, and as always, I am joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hiya. Now, let's kick off with... A bit of a continuation from last week, because we did speak about the negative tone and the, how can we say, the unencouraging signs from the UK team. But things seem to have taken a little bit of a different turn this week. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think actually, if anything, I need to apologise as well. I mean, last week's podcast became pretty miserable um, as we started tearing our hair out. I think all of the tension that particularly Alex and I have had over the government just came flooding out uh, last week. So we're going to go for a bit more of an optimistic line this week. But yeah, I'm let Alex kick this off. But we've uh, we've seen some positive news from government. Yeah, uh, there's been a bit of a shift in tone, it seems, and it. It kind of feels like it happened overnight, maybe on Wednesday last week or something like that. Um, because obviously last week we had the second official round of negotiations uh, with David Davis flying over to Brussels and then leaving after an hour or something like that. Um, apparently that was all planned and that Barnier also left. But then they went back and kind of concluded them. And, you know, our side kind of again reported it. It, it kind of felt like, again, they were denying reality somewhat, um, saying that there's been lots of progress. And, you know, we know where we agree and we know where we disagree. And Barnier came out and essentially said that we're at a massive impasse um, because of this thing on citizens' rights, whereby the citizens' rights going forward are going to have to be overseen by a supranational court of some kind. Uh, usually that would be the ECJ, as it, as it currently is. Um, and of course, one of the Tories' red lines is that we can't, we can no longer be subject to the jurisdiction of the ECJ in any way. Uh, and so Barnier, I think, essentially said, "Well, what's your solution to this?" And we didn't have one. Um, and so, yeah, it seemed like they basically came to an impasse, and there was no kind of uh, productive outcome from the talks whatsoever. But then, following that, I think just just maybe the next day, everything seemed to shift. And we spoke last week about. Uh, Again, how you know Davis Fox in particular, Boris has gone a bit quiet on the Brexit side of things, but but Boris too. They they seem to be uh, putting on a good show, but not necessarily addressing what everyone else is saying. Um, but it, it kind of seemed to change last week. We were t- we were talking particularly about the things that Davis was saying in front of the select committees, um, how they're they're sticking to this kind of very rigid party line, very mm. rigid set of objectives, and we feel like they need to perhaps readjust their approach and their expectations. And it kind of felt like they all started to do it all at once last week. Um, I mean, we had in one week, we had Liam Fox saying, uh, you, know, you know, that it was going to be the easiest free trade agreement ever, ever done. Um, and then just a few days later on TV saying that he no longer thinks that it could be done in two years, which is something that they've all been saying for a very long time. Um, so hang on, my question then before we go into the actual change of tone is what has made them shift 
shift that tone. We were just we were talking about this earlier on. We're not we're not really sure. Um, it it kind of seems to happen very suddenly, and we're thinking that it's maybe linked to the the proceedings of the second round of negotiations, but. We don't really know because it, it did seem to happen overnight that they all kind of shifted slightly and stopped sticking to these kind of rigid lines that they've been using for so long. Um, I mean, could, it does seem odd, doesn't it, that it all changed because there's not really many people with more clout than the people that, we, that we've been listening to. So to think it's come up from high or something would be, well, it just doesn't seem logical. No, it doesn't. And part of me wonders if this has come from the Brussels side of the negotiations, I must admit. I have no evidence for this whatsoever. Um, I think Alex, we talked last week. Um, uh, we saw last week about the sudden rise of EFTA. So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. this, the EFTA phrase, European Freight, um, Free Trade Association, all of a sudden it was being pushed from Brussels side. Yes. I mean, almost like it was they were just dangling a carrot. You mm. know, in, in every sort of statement, there was the well, there is EFTA. Well, there is EFTA. You know, you might like to think about it. Um, and it's almost like, yeah, I, I don't understand what's going on in our ministers' heads, but I'm delighted that it is, uh, and it appears to indicate that they're they might be being open to a bit more pragmatic view well, of all this than we thought there, there are just a week ago. a number of signs, uh, I, I think. And I, um, I think the first one was that we, we spoke last week about the disagreements between Philip Hammond mm. um, and that he was very interested in there being a, an implementation phase or a transition phase, whatever, whatever you, phrase you want to use. Um, well, first of all, there was an article uh, in the Huffington Post where Gove and Davis had agreed that there would now need to be a transition period until uh, 2022, they they stipulated that they see freedom of movement of people continuing until at least 2022, which to me reads that they're accepting that single market membership will continue until 2022, because why would you accept to continue freedom of movement if you don't want the rest of it? So that reads to me like they're interested now in a transition period uh, where we stay inside the single market for the foreseeable future. Um, and then following the second round of negotiations um, and this whole impasse that they came to over ECJ jurisdiction, somebody actually asked the question of Barnier. Um, someone asked him, you know, what other countries accept jurisdiction of foreign courts over their citizens? And he specifically said Norway and EFTA. Um, you know, like, they're making it very, very obvious that they, they see this as a kind of compromise and a, as a solution. He went on to say... Um, EA countries have the same legal system. Uh, the EFTA court dovetails with the ECJ, uh, and the most important thing for for, U- for Brussels, sorry, is that the UK shows respect for EU case law. He said uh, he reinforces that the EFTA court is a sensible compromise, at least for a transition period, as it's an independent body but is recognised by the EU. And then Barnier said all this after the, negotia- the ne- negotiations broke down. It it really seems like they're really kind of shoving this in our faces at this point. And why? Why are they so? keen for us to get this well what I see is a pretty good deal actually um, basically is because it a good deal? yeah I, mean, I, th- I, think, I think we we here would agree that it's a good deal because it makes everything just so 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 easy compared to how it would be if you're trying to negotiate a bespoke FTA um, it's, exactly, it's, it's makes, an off the shelf option basically it, it is that's it it's, it's not about that it makes it easy I'm glad it says that the easier is, is important you know, even going for even had we decided, you know, at the point of the referendum that the EAF route was what we were going to take, it's still a lot of work involved. Yes. But it's a minute amount of the work involved compared to renegotiating everything from scratch. Mm. Um, it will. It would allow. Certainly, it ticks the box. It ticks the referendum question box because you would be yeah. technically outside of the European Union. There's all sorts of questions, and you know there'll be some. There'll, even under this option, there'll be some pretty strong political leadership needed to, to assuage the Leave side that a this isn't a temporary hole into which we're going to get stuck forever. Um, there'll be some delicate stuff to deal with uh, to deal with the continued freedom of people. We know technically within the EEA treaty, one of the articles whose number I can't remember um, theoretically allows a member state to restrict uh, migration numbers. It's only ever been used in Liechtenstein, which is not surprisingly a pretty special edge case. Mm-hmm. Could you get away with that as a major economy? I'm the second largest uh, in EU. Maybe, maybe not, but there is a clause which can be worked with. Mm. That much we know. Um, and then, of course, the single market membership, the the continued access to, uh, to the European market unhindered, the continued access to all of the free trade agreements mm-hmm. that the EU currently has. Uh, with other third countries, all of that stays on the table. And, as you know, I'm sure Michael Gove will be delighted, well, of course, what you don't get as part of the EEA treaties is common agriculture policy, common fisheries policy, and there's one other aspect, actually, which I've now forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do start to be able to repatriate some of those. Right, so 
where's the downside? Where are hardcore Brexiteers going to lose their mind? Where? where? I suspect it's the, it's the issue. For me, I suspect it'll be the freemen of people issue. Um, essentially, you know, continue for them. Uh, well, actually, for the, I suppose there's a bit of a nuance here. For the very noisy side of the Leave campaign, the freemen of people bit is a big issue. The post-referendum polling suggested it was a large but minority issue. And I think that's a really important point. And we've also seen actually some more recent polling over the past week or so that there's now a majority, if it was a trade-off between single market membership and restricted migration, a majority, or at least the largest share, would opt for single market membership rather than that. So there's been a bit of a subtle shift in, in public opinion anyway. Not huge, but mm. there's been a subtle shift. But I suspect it would be it would be handling that. Now, from my point of view, personal viewpoint, I don't see that as a problem, providing the political narrative is woven well and there's a you know there's a, a good strong sense of leadership in where we're going. If we if you sell this as look, this is the easiest possible way to achieve the objectives you all want, you know, outside mm-hmm. the EU, outside EEA, outside all of that, then actually I think you I think it's perfectly possible to weave a sensible political narrative about this. My fear, or well, my fear a week ago, which is as I said, definitely less now, is actually it feels like they're now starting to soften the ground for this. The challenge is, of course, is they're going to be they're going to have to work harder to soften the ground because they've actually spent the last two years hardening that ground as much as they can. So they're going to have to undo a lot of what they've already done. But I think it's doable. I think I think the other side that, that might be difficult with this one is is the whole kind of sovereignty issue and the fact that. As continued members of the single market, we'd still be subjected to lots of the, the regulations and things Give like that. Give me an example of that. Um, well, I mean, I mean, essentially, um, we, we would still be subjected to all exa- the exact same rules that we are now in terms of having our goods recognised and getting across borders and but things like that. Isn't that the same even, say, if as a manufacturer in the United States trying to import into the EU? I mean, not quite, no, because it's a single market and not a free trade area. So the yeah. free trade area is within that. So it goes one level above. So it's true. Let's pick two third countries that, are, that we know are completely separate. Let's choose for random USA and, I don't know, uh, Brazil. Yeah. So any goods made in the USA for export to Brazil will have to meet Brazilian regulations. That's mm. nice and straightforward. No problem there. If there were a single market between the USA and Brazil, that would mean all goods made in the USA, all goods, regardless of their destination, have to meet Brazil's requirements. Mm. So that's essentially what the single market bit does. So even if I'm making goods in the UK, uh, here in Manchester, and I'm going to sell them to a client in Leeds, I have to hit EU regs for those, even though I'm not necessarily selling into the EU. That's the different bit. So so the single market will continue to evolve, uh, as it does all the time. Um, and those decisions made at the ECJ about components of the single market would be enforced down to EEA members. Though there are exceptions and there are edge cases. So Norway, on the whole, will be required to implement, well, theoretically to implement pretty much all ECJ legislation, all EU legislation regarding the single market. But actually it can veto stuff and not implement it. But what it will have to do is pay the cost of doing so. So there may be an additional charge to Norway for not implementing that legislation. There may be crackdowns in other aspects of its trading relationship. But it does have the power to veto, although it can't do it cost-free. Because there's there's still this idea that Brexit's going to lead to a massive wave of deregulation. And I think some people are scared that if we get if we get ourselves into the EEA, then that'll remove the possibility of that happening. Mm. Because we will always have to be in line with the, the, the EU rules. But... I would argue that we would always want to be in line with those those rules anyway. And what the EEA does, which is different to, for example, a, a free trade agreement or a, an MRA, which is a mutual recognition agreement, um, those things are negotiated at a set period in time. And then as the kind of regulations and rules change, they have to be renegotiated and updated to make sure that you remain... Uh, you, you remain in, li- in line with the uh, the regulations, whereas the EEA kind of automatically adopts uh, new uh, EU legislation. Mm. So uh, the, the the EEA representatives will take the new uh, regulations and then write them into EEA law. Um, so it's kind of like this automatic process for keeping us in line with the, the EU rules and regulations. Yeah, I, I think it's a case of the sensible regulations. So, I mean, we all want our aircraft to be built to a fairly high standard, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, we don't want to have to put may contain salmon on, on a pack of smoked salmon. Yeah. 
I mean, I think those are the sort of things where we the, hope the, to repatriate. You know, the, the, cr- the question comes down to the to the the, the, the fact that the EU is our, our biggest trading partner, and obviously we could change regulations and things like that for ourselves if we remove ourselves from the EEA or the single market. But would we really want to do so when the, e- the EU is still our biggest trading partner? Because we would still have to comply with the EU's rules when trading with the EU. Yeah. We just wouldn't have to comply with them when we're consuming those products here or selling them elsewhere. And then how much room do you think there is for companies to start producing one set of goods for sale in one, one destination? And one course, that's it. And that doesn't happen. If yeah. We talk to all our big manufacturers. No manufacturer, even the global manufacturers do not run an EU supply, an EU manufacturing process and a non-EU manufacturing process. Is that right? No, because, because it's, it's too expensive. You, make, I mean, you manufacture to the best There are differences, standards. aren't there, between, say, cars which are for, for the EU market and cars which are for the US market. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be an example of two different streams where a manufacturer is actually building two sets of products. But I, think, I think what they do is they make sure that they comply to both, basically. That's it. Ah, yeah. right, so the standard is... Highest, the, the best, highest regulation across. Across. So, so, so regulate, regulation t- taking it up to that level is, is basically done globally, which I think goes back to one of the arguments why potentially the, the EU is going to become outdated over the next maybe few decades. Exactly, because you talk about like food labelling. Actually, most food labelling regs is coming down from the UNECE. Yeah. It's not coming from the EU. You know, there are global standards at can play I, here. Can I just rewind re- something? I found something Alex just said really interesting. Mm-hmm. The EU might become out become outdated just just explain that process because i think that's really interesting uh well um this, this is kind of like a, a leave argument that was made before the referendum and i think i think there's something to it and it's essentially that we're we're moving towards a position where all these rules and regulations will be agreed on a, on a global scale rather than mm. you know so the, so the eu is a, is a kind of a trade block and does its own things and pushes the regulatory agenda you know, in, in a way which has been productive and successful over, over its history. But increasingly, those decisions and those regulations are coming from global bodies like the WTO or f- for food standards, something like Codex Alimentarius. And these are the, these kind of uh, unilateral bodies um, that will eventually kind of set global rules so that everyone will have to comply to the same standards. So the argument is that while the EU might have made loads and loads of progress in in making sure that all these all these countries can trade easily by making making sure they all comply with each other, uh, eventually that's going to become a, on a happen on a global scale rather than just on an EU scale, which is one of the arguments why people would say, for example, that the Norway option would actually be okay in terms of losing that EU influence because we could then take uh, seats on global bodies and it exert more influence in these global bodies where um, potentially in the future these, th- these decisions are going to be uh, being made. I see. That's a really interesting point of view. <laughs> okay. So shall we move, it, move this conversation on unless you've got anything else to add to that? No, I, th- I think the only thing probably I would add on that is um, we were talking there about kind of mutual recognition agreements and auto, you know, the, the way the EEA, EU relationship works is stuff gets um, automatically transposed over. And it's for reasons like that that um, uh, Liam Fox, or we would have said last week, Liam Fox is wrong to say this will be the easiest trade deal in history. Mm-hmm. Yet, like everything in bits of complex policy, he's kind of right and kind of wrong. Mm-hmm. He's right in the sense that, of course, what most the battle in most in doing most big free trade agreements is getting the regulatory systems closely aligned if not identically aligned in certain places that's usually a huge upheaval for one of the partners usually the smaller not surprisingly because the bigger you are the more influence you exert in all of that that of course is not an issue as we leave the eu because our regulatory systems are identical the eu regulatory system is the uk regulatory system that's easy the challenge is what does it look like in the future now, what makes an FTA with, with the EU potentially quite complex is actually our line over ECJ jurisdiction. Mm. Because what makes it complex is that will only work providing we can agree to keep our regulatory systems in check. So mm-hmm. what we have today can exist in the future providing our regulatory system evolves to at least the same standard. You can go further, of course, that's fine. At least the same standard as the EU. So what most free trade agreements, what these MRAs do, Alex talked about mutual recognition agreements and how they have to keep evolving, is they keep have to evolving because regulation changes. The EU works in this respect because regulation automatically updates. Yeah. So, a, so let's just go off on a tangent a second. So an agreement such as, is it... Is it TTP or T- TTIP? TTIP, which is the one yep. which got thrown out. Yep. Yeah. Okay, now, 
I imagine the stumbling block there, and we can kind of round this on to another subject which has been topical in the news, would be the standard standardization of regulation between the USA and the EU. Yeah. I, I imagine that's why and it's a huge one. It's a huge one in any FTA, but from a Western kind of European perspective, so from the EU's perspective, countries like Australia, New Zealand, uh, even South Africa to some extent, their regulatory systems are all kind of similar, very different levels, mm. but they're all kind of similar. The USA is a complete outlier in the sense the way the regulatory system is devised is just completely different. So from an EU perspective, one of the big, and often, you know, people have often said this is one of the huge hurdles in releasing new products, new chemicals, new food processing techniques into the EU market, is what you must do is conclusively prove that it is safe. Yeah, so there's, there was one, there was, there's two ways to do this, isn't there? There's prove it's not harmful and prove it's completely safe or something, some, exactly, so which yeah. sounds the same, but it's actually very that, different. That's a decent enough division. And the US one is, does it appear, it doesn't appear to be harmful. Track on. Yep. The, UK, the, U, the EU model, and so a lot of the Western world, is you must conclusively prove there is nothing damaging here. Now, that gives you two totally different standards, and that is why, TTIP, that's why actually against you know, um, the stuff that I guess is going to come up next, um, becomes really hard when you're mm-hmm. looking for a deal between the EU, or particularly the UK in this instance, and the US. If you've got the two biggest markets, US, do you count the EU as a, single mar- as, as a market, or is mm-hmm. it China? Yeah, you, you can't both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and what I'm trying to get at is, is it is it US and then EU? Is it US then China then then EU? It depends in, what, in terms of what do you're talking do, about. Yeah, depend, depends how you count it, really. So, if you're counting it in GDP, then it's uh, then it's America, China, EU. If you're counting it in population, then it's certainly China, EU, US. If you're talking in terms of trade volumes, it flips differently. I think regulatory it, influence. Right. Yeah, EU probably. EU will, will trump absolutely yeah. in terms of global regulatory influence. So you've got America at the moment. So this this is a great, great example of how it could be problematic, who apparently are getting rid of 16 regulations for every new regulation that they're bringing in currently. Gosh. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Um, I never like the regulation count things because it's terribly easy to get rid of ones that don't affect anybody and replace them with ones that do, which is what we saw here. Um, in the, under the coalition government had a lovely system called the Red Tape Challenge. That was one for two for one, was it not? It started off at one for one and two for one, and you make the multiplier up as you like. But what you say is, well, I can introduce this new regulation which will you know, impose a cost of £5 per employee per year forever, but I'll take away these two. I'll take away the, the, the selling of fireworks to underage people, <laughs> uh, and I'll take away the, you know, what would the beds can be made of, of? Of cows. Exactly. So, yeah, d- d- counts are no good. We've got to look at cost. Yeah. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of the reg- regulatory, um, how can I call it? One of the regulations that has made the news recently is Liam Fox's uh, adventures with the US and coming back with chlorinated chicken or something, some, some such thing. <laughs> um, how has this made made the news is it important uh this is kind of representative of what we've just been talking about um so in america apparently if you've been to america and you've eaten chicken in america Mm. you have eaten chlorinated chicken because that's what everybody eats in america and it's chicken that has essentially been dipped into some chlorine water to clean it of bacteria um and so the issue is that the eu doesn't allow this chicken to be sold within the EU market because we hold ourselves to higher standards. Um, uh, well, that, do we that's have to, what do we have to dip it in chlorine twice? <laughs> but this is a nice example, you see. Chlorinated yeah. chicken has not been proven to be harmful. Yeah, but it's not been proven to not be harmful. Yes, and that's oh. your regulatory challenge. Yeah, um, so the EU bans it. Yeah. yeah, so this is representative of potentially one of the difficulties with us doing a trade deal with America because they will want us to accept chlorinated chicken into Britain post-Brexit, um, whereas at the minute we don't, and there's lots of people who are grossed out by the idea of chlorinated chicken. I would just point out that according to my research, chlorinated chicken is to- totally fine and it's completely <laughs> safe and apparently drinking a glass of water it will expose you to as much chlorine as a chlorinated chicken world, but I, I can. I, un- I love the fact that you've done the research. Like, on it. I, I can, un- I can understand why people are grossed out. Apparently, um, you would have to eat three whole chickens in a day to reach the EU's kind of minimum level of 
like, like sounds like a challenge, yeah, challenge uh, <laughs> minimum level of, of risk or something like that but it's it's a great example i think though it's of a, a practical one about where you've got to be careful and why there are why you know tr- international trade deals are hard so it's perfectly possible that we could walk away from the eu uh, and do a deal which allows coronated chicken to come into the uk and people say well that's cool that's coming to the uk it doesn't affect the eu but all of a sudden what that will do is the risk mitigation for chicken imports from the UK to the EU will go up. So at the moment, you know, mutual recognition, there, there would almost certainly, you would never get, even though we could say, the UK government could say, we will import some American chicken for consumption in the UK, we will sell some chicken from the UK, which is non-chlorinated, to the EU. The chance of a mutual recognition agreement coming about, which says we don't, which says the EU thinks we don't need to check the chicken coming into the mm-hmm. EU is really low. So this is about inspection of goods and do they meet standards? At the moment, as part of the single market, all of our enforcement bodies are approved by the EU to say if the UK's checked it, we're happy. We don't need to do anything else. And mostly that's done on a risk basis. So how likely do we think violations of code might be? If we're importing loads of chlorinated chicken from the US for consumption here, which might be being processed by the same factories, same warehouses, same supermarket um, refrigeration units, mm-hmm. you can almost guarantee that the chance of getting any free trade deal between the UK and the EU, which included chicken or processed chicken, is now much lower because you're exposing risks. Or you might get it, but there'll be greater checks, yeah. greater quantities of chickens being stopped at borders, etc. And so it's, it's, it's a t- I mean, this is a sliver of an issue. But it's, it's, very, it's very representative of lots of bigger issues. It uh, is. Um, now, multiply this by a million product types. Because there, there are um, other impacts. So I, I believe chlorinated chicken would come out... Like, imported chlorinated chicken to Britain would come out at just under 80% of the cost of chickens we currently grow and buy here. So potentially we would have access to cheaper chickens because we've been importing loads of them from America. But currently, I believe British farmers, there, there's something in the EU where that restricts kind of movement of poultry. And I, I think there's an argument that in France, they're much, much more efficient at, at rearing chickens than we are. And that potentially some of our agriculture sector is... That's got to be an animal, animal welfare standard thing. Agri- agricultural sector is kind of being protected somewhat from competition from, from elsewhere. Um, because of the current regulations within the, within the EU. So then the, the argument is that if we expose ourselves to chlorinated chicken, all of our chicken farmers will go under because they have to produce things. They're current, they're, the way that they're set up currently is to produce things to a higher standard, um, which when, once we're exposed to cheaper chlorinated chicken, everyone might jump on board with that, um, and it'll give our farmers uh, a big problem. My, I, my, my response to that as a free marketeer, by the way, would, yeah. be, would, would, would be, if everyone is so grossed out by chlorinated chicken, yeah. why do you need to ban it? Because people just won't buy it. But I understand I, it's, I much, it's much problem, more complicated than that. I guess the problem isn't your, you know, uh, Tesco finest, other supermarkets are available, um, you know, luxury chicken breast. It's the things which chicken is in, which isn't so obvious. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the I minimum standard yeah. stuff, essentially. But as I said, it's a great example of, ha- of what goes into the free trade deal. Because all of a sudden you expose the UK market to cheaper competition from yeah. third country for the US. That has implication on our domestic market and what we can do. But that will in turn have an, have an impact on all free trade agreements that the UK signs with any other country. Because all of this stuff interacts. So if it looks like we might be shaving a few percentage points off the margin of UK farmers, who will then be looking for that margin to come back from somewhere else, which might affect France in a mm. UK-EU trade deal. But that means that has an impact on France, so France will be looking. And it's all of this multi-part playoff well, they're all country the, against country. It's, you know, this stuff is. There's a reason trade deals usually take a decade. And you can you can see why this stuff always ends up going global too. Because what happens if China starts to want to do FTAs with people and and China produces chlorinated chicken? Yeah. Well, it's all it's all going to be null and void <laughs> soon anyway when they start growing it in labs. So, <laughs> we'll, we'll, so we'll just wait for that. But it's a great example. Yeah, a tiny thing that's a great example of actually why this stuff is hard. Yeah, yeah. and not for any of the reasons that you've actually heard. It, you know, on Twitter or the press. For no, exactly. No, it's different. not about tariffs and all the rest of it. And, but you'd probably look to do the tariffy thing, mm-hmm. you know, in that kind of situation. Oh, America can produce a chicken 20% cheaper than the UK. Okay, so let's stick a, let's stick a tariff on the imports uh, of American chicken, at which point you're closing down a market for US exporters to the UK. So they'll mm-hmm. say, okay, we want something in return. Cashmere will be charged or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, that's it. 
Um, okay, well, last week we did say we were a little bit negative, and we were going to do a show on how we would structure Brexit, or, or should I say, the ambitions of Brexit. So, should we touch on that now for five minutes? Why or? not? We can do Brexit in five minutes. We can yeah. give it a go. Um, <laughs> well, so, so, the basic premise of, of this question is last week we were talking about Brexit being the reason for Brexit, which is basically just leaving yeah. le- le- leaving the EU. There's no real sub- substance behind it. So you two were going to kind of construct a way that... Have I got this right? Con- construct a way that you would leave the EU? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we've we've broadly given, given all our cards away on that one. Um, I, th- I think we both agree that the way we would do it is through e- the EA and EFTA mm. um, and take this kind of step-by-step approach. Um, I, I, there was an, a nice tweet that I saw that was the... Uh, the single market is a regulatory construct and the EU is a political construct and to, to be a free trading nation we need one but not necessarily other. Um, mm. And so... For That's me- a remarkably pithy summary actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I, th- I think you break it down into that, in, 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 into that, kind, of, that kind of thing. Um, so I, th- I think from the Tories' point of view, one of the mistakes that they've made is that they, they see Brexit as being the thing which is going to bring us all these new opportunities and things. Where really it isn't Brexit, it should just be an administrative task of getting us outside the EU. Uh, and then once that's done, then we can figure out what else we want to do. I, I think that's exactly it. And I think if we cast our minds back all of these weeks ago to, I think, podcast number one, you know, one, and one of the phrases we've used for a long time now is Brexit's a process, not an event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually you said, what is it you want to do? What is it you, that the country wants to be able to do in this brave new world outside? Um, that, you know, and there are a few laudable ambitions. We want to be able to push free trade along. We want to be able to do free trade with third nations. It's almost certainly clear, I think it's reasonable to say, whilst we may not get, we almost certainly would not get as good a trade deal, the UK on its own talking to a third country, as the EU would, simply because of sheer force of numbers and mm-hmm. political clout, we could get something quicker away, something smaller away more quickly. Because one of the big barriers, of course, the EU is essentially you've got to get 28 people to agree, and that's not easy. 29 once you put the third country in. So, of course, that's hard. So I think we can probably evolve in, in some of that stuff more quickly and say, let's tick a box for now that says, yes, we want to be able to do our own our own trade deals. There's clearly a desire amongst a, at least a large minority, if not the majority of the UK population, to, to restrict, even if not to restrict migration, then to at least flip a model from freedom of movement to, uh, to some form of checking system, whatever that might be points, whatever, you know, design a system that you like. Um, well, actually, yeah, I mean, coming out of the EU will let you do that. Potentially staying in the EA will let you do aspects of that. Um, there's all of those bits. But again, as Alex came back to, it's the, it's the how do you get there? Mm. You know, the first stage to being able to do all this stuff is to get from the relationship we are in now to one which is outside the EU, but is basically identical to the one we are in now. Yeah. It's, it, we've always said it's this step it's the it's the going from the day before Brexit to the day after Brexit, without causing problems. That's the hard and the important bit. Because mm-hmm. leaving the EU isn't hard. We could literally repeal the 1972 ECA, and it is done. That will get us outside of the EU with one parliamentary vote. It will cause complete and utter carnage, because all treaties cease to apply, all FTAs cease to agree, all agreements, everything just stops. So getting out's not hard. Mm. Getting out intact is pretty tricky and needs some work, but can be done. And the easiest way to get from in to out is via something like the EA. There's still loads to do. We're still going to have to write an agriculture policy from scratch. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to write a, uh, a, uh, a fisheries policy. We're going to have to write our own customs code, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Those are hard enough, but it's much, much smaller than I, rewriting the entire so, thing. So we see the EEA after Norway option as being an off-the-shelf option, but I, I've still read in some places that people expect it'll take five years more mm-hmm. just to get us into that position. Um, because the EEA, the EEA is a treaty system that has country-specific annexes and is tailored to each country. Um, and so I, I think the, the longer-term picture is that we get ourselves into the EEA, um, and I think some people would argue that we take that as a first stepping stone and then we look to get ourselves outside of that uh, um, in the future, um, I, I'm not sure that that would be the case, and obviously we'd have to reassess once we were there because of this whole issue of I, I think that it's in our best interest to remain compliant with the single market. Um, I don't see any reason why we would want to lose that aspect, but there's definitely room for us to kind of uh, 
reform the EEA or reverse engineer it in some way to better suit our needs once we're there. Um, and, and so I wouldn't make any in any kind of statements about where I'd want us to go once we're in that position. But I, I think we need to get ourselves there and, and then kind of take stock and see what we want to do. Yeah, because because then from that point, your options become really wide and really large. Yeah. Alex is right, absolutely on EU regs. There is no way, you know, broadly, it's it's not unreasonable to suggest over the next 10, 20, 30 years, a whole host of other countries are going to come in broadly into line mm-hmm. with EU regulation. It's the mm-hmm. dominant regulator, albeit it's a lot coming down from global level as well. It's seen as the gold standard. It's broadly half of our trade. It's broadly going to remain something like half of our trade for a long time. Why? Because it's next door. And distance matters in international trade. Just a quick so why would we that. kind of separate away? Just a, a quick challenge on that. You, you mentioned there's a free marketeer earlier, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you find for chlorinated chickens to come in, which you know, I, I, I can see that. Why then would you keep all the regulations? Because surely if these regulations mattered to the consumer, they would just buy the things which were made to EU regs, but they'd have a choice of, a, a choice of other products too. Um... Uh, sorry, sorry. That, yeah, that's, well, a, that's a bit hard in. to entangle. That's okay. No, I would say, because it, it's about that stuff we talked about earlier, it's about future recognition. So the point is, every time the UK um, were to potentially lower its standards or do trade deals with third countries, which implicitly but That's a political lowered, thing, though, isn't uh, no, it? No, 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 I think it is. That will have an impact on our relationship with the EU. Because... Be- because of... Che- yeah, because of cheaper. trusting what's going in. Because the whole thing about... I mean, let's, let's go one step back. Free trade agreements and tariffs and all of that kind of stuff only exist for the sake of protectionism. Yeah. That's the only reason they're there. And FTAs and mutual recognition agreements are trying to erode the kind of default protectionism that most countries start from uh, and evolve away. So what, from the EU's point of view, they'll, you know, they're going through all the conversations with us now. The one thing they will be maximising, the one thing they will want to get out of whatever the deal is is that the, U- e- that the UK cannot be used as a backdoor to the EU single market. Mm. That's the great. So if you create, and this is why things like the Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland border is going to be so hard. Yes. Because what it potentially allows you to do is, is have goods made within the UK, potentially to non-EU standards. If that's an open border, then those goods get straight into, because once they're inside the Republic of Ireland, they have free passage throughout the whole of Europe. It's the big issue about the migrant crisis in Europe. Mm. Is the huge problem is what you have to do when you create a closed system or a semi-closed system, be it the customs union or the freedom of movement in the Schengen area, all your reliance now is on your external border because there is nothing in the middle to stop. And once, you, once a person or a good is in the system, that's it. There is no opportunity to check anymore. So this is what the EU is going to be wavering. Now, the more our regulations shift from the EU, the greater the risk of the UK being used as a backdoor is, therefore the greater the propensity of the EU will want to co- mm. conduct checks. Maybe not on everything, maybe just randomised, but the more likely they are. If we're absolutely bang up to date and we enforce them and they trust our regulatory bodies to enforce those rules, yeah. then all of that goes away. So uh, I'll, I'll chip in just on, on, the, on your question now that I've thought about it, because it, it goes both ways, doesn't it? Because it, it, the, it works, the argument works for producers as well. So assume we regain uh, kind of regulatory independence so that you can produce to the EU standards if you want, or you can produce to some kind of new domestic standards which we come up with. Or no standards. Why, why, why would you not produce to the EU standards when that is our biggest export market? Um, it's not... Well, I, I can understand that. I mean, you're going to be coming down to. I mean, some of the examples which have been in the news, like we could produce, you know, Hoovers, which are 1,000 cc's more powerful, or something like that. Mm. But why, why, why would Britain? I, I guess my, I guess my worry would be, is regulation and the upping of standards for the sake of the upping of standards. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example now. Dog walking. Dog walking is an, an absolutely great one. All I want is my dog walker to show up and walk my dog. But recently, she's shown up, and she's now got first aid forms, which I've got, to, which I've got to f- fill in, because she's now got to be to be insured. And would you believe it? The council has regulated the amount of dogs which you can take on a walk at any one time. Ah, lovely. So, so it's nothing to do with the EU. It's your local council. It, yes, no, no. But the point about the regulation remains: whether it be council, whether it be EU, my worry would just be over-regulation for the sake of doing it and yeah, then and, and closing and these things. No, and, and you're right. And the the EU does not have a good 
long-term history in regulating to minimum possible standards to keep things going. It does have a reputation for being onerous. Mm. It has, to be fair to it, over the last kind of five or ten years, started to introduce quite a lot of reviews of all of that, where it's trying to you know remove stuff that isn't necessary. But essentially, your big thing is international competitiveness. Yeah. So that's the you know mm-hmm. that should be the driver. If you can buy product A from an EU to EU standards, uh, which is you know hundred pounds and really good, or you can buy one for sixty pounds and isn't really good, then actually you have a competitiveness I, I, I guess issue. My, I guess my and point that is that should kind of pass through. If that, the regulations were really worth their while. You wouldn't need to protect your market because the consumers would value them anyway. Well, I think I think that puts an awful lot of onus onto consumers to understand what's out in the market. And you know, actually, the reason regulatory environments have evolved over the past two hundred years is precisely because we understand that the availability of pure information to to the market as a whole is pretty limited. It's also important when you're buying across borders. So one of the big examples is food regulation. Why do I have mm. to? Why do I have to? Why do my bananas have to be, you know, a certain curvature and a certain diameter and all that kind of stuff? Uh, because if I go to Sainsbury's, I can look at them and decide which ones I want. Cool. But you need to make sure that your that Sainsbury's buying agent in London, when it buys bananas from the Canary Islands, knows what they are buying. That's why we have them. So I know that I'm buying these bananas at £2 a kilo because they meet these thresholds. And you can buy standards less if you like, but actually what you tend to find is as regulations come in, everything rises to the highest. Because on the whole, it's not worth producing mm. more than one stream. So yeah. regulations are you know, there to help all mm-hmm. of these actually you know, big hidden macro effects macroeconomic effects, which actually, to be fair, don't get discussed in public much because they're pretty technical and they're often bedded down in hundreds of years of research as to why they're there. Um, so yes, your regs are, when I buy something that isn't in front of me, or even a complex item that is in front of me, I'm going to buy this computer, how do I know what's inside it? How do I know to what standard it is? How do I verify that? Well, actually, the CE mark on the bottom says it is there to Europeans. So you can, you can take this one step further as well. Um, so, so I said earlier, if, if we regain regulatory independence, um, so companies here would then probably have to comply with EU regs anyway if they want to sell to that market. But if we were doing it through something like a, an FTA or an MRA, um, our, regu- our regulations and rules and the EU's regulations and rules would diverge then over time. So we'd yeah. have a different framework to them. So our companies would then be obliged to continue um, complying to their regulations. But then, we, because they would have a system in place to make sure that those goods comply with those regulations, we on this side would then have to set up our own systems to make sure that their goods complied with their own ones. Mm-hmm. And then... The EU companies would then have to start complying to our regulatory framework rather than ours. And why would they do that just to sell to the UK when they can just sell to the rest of the EU? Yeah, yeah. So those size of markets things is really important. I think, and this is where I, I remember getting a lot of kickback from uh, from levers, particularly hard levers, as it were in the early days when I said, look, you know, the EU holds the upper hand in all this. It's oh yeah, but you know, the trade balance and all those things. It's just a sheer matter of fact that there are 440 million people on the mainland EU and 60 here, that the EU is the world's largest trade bloc. It is well respected as a regulator. When I talk about upper hand, yeah, it has political upper hand just because it's larger. Um, fine, it's 27 countries. It's also, it's its club. The EU is the EU's club, so it has a political upper hand from that. But it just has a practical upper hand because its market is larger, it's the one that's been doing this, it's well established as a global regulator, it has very good, you know, it's regarded well amongst all the global bodies in terms of implementation uh, and management. Uh, it's broadly recognized as being a, a broadly a pragmatic regulator that doesn't go, it doesn't go lifting standards insanely above where they need to be. It does do that in some areas certainly, but on the whole, you know, all of those things give it the upper hand in this. It's because very, it's, it's incredibly complex thing because you you can make you can make counter arguments for pretty much everything, but you can also appreciate the advantages that this you know that that this necessitates. It's, yeah. Uh, so my has always been: it's never about that we're going to get hammered or we can't come up with a good deal, but there has to be a recognition that actually, as Alex has said, why would we diverge? from the, the, the body that's kind of leading global standards development and is next door and is our largest trading partner. Mm-hmm. Just from a sheer practical, once you start to talk about the trade agreements and the mutual recognition agreements and all of that, the answer simply becomes, well, actually, why would you bother? Mm. 
It's just, it's just not in anybody's interest. The idea that we can suddenly deregulate is just not plausible. It's a lovely idea, but it's just not plausible. We've only spoken about trade as, as well today, and yeah. obviously there's hundreds of other areas where we're going to have to figure these things out. Yeah, and so, if we, so yeah, drug regulation, standards of cars, car safety equipment, and if, those, you know, all if, of that. If, yeah. we, if we want to negotiate individual deals, um, individual static agreements on, on all these various areas, then essentially we find ourselves in Switzerland's position, and Switzerland isn't happy with their position, and the EU's not happy with Switzerland's position, because Switzerland have to constantly negotiate with the EU and have to give up things like ECJ jurisdiction, like the things precisely which we want to get rid of, Switzerland have to take in order to maintain a convergence with the single market. So doing this through a whole bunch of different agreements is, I think it is potentially a path for us ending up in in the worst possible position. Absolutely. And certainly if you try to do it quickly, you know, you, you could, you know, I can imagine scenarios where that happens over a very long time. That, you know, we get to EEA standards, we get to the EEA position, we're starting to do deals with everyone else. Actually, the nature of how supply chains are currently structured might change over decades, which then, see, which then perhaps opens up an opportunity where the UK says, actually, actually, we're no longer really nested within all of this in Europe, in this bit of the sector. Here are some opportunities we might now push with emerging markets because we think we've got it. Um, and I think that's the last bit I'll, I'll sort of close on that is, you know, all of this dominance and where, why you would follow the EU regs. Because people have said, well, other countries are not in the EU and they manage, okay. It's fine, but other countries have not been in the EU where business, individuals, consumers have slowly integrated because they could. Mm. Yeah? We joined the EU, but that didn't mean that companies had to structure themselves to trade in the way they have. But the point is, they have. So all of those supply chains are now set up because of the relationship we currently have. So changing that relationship quickly can be really hard because actually, if we were in a different world, the business and consumer world wouldn't look like what it looks like now. But it does. So we are, it's the thing about we are where we are. Um, I said you could see, yeah, we separate, we become EEA members. I don't know, maybe, just, I'm not predicting this, it's just an example. Maybe our relationship and supply chains in uh, auto manufacturing changes and actually we cease to be a major player in the European market. Can't see it happening, but just as a sheer kind of example, that it fades away, our relationship from the UK and the EU in that sector fades away enough over 20, 30 years that you think, actually, I'm now happy to sever all the MRAs and everything between us and them in this sector because actually we see an opportunity to go and work, to do full-blown open markets access with Korea and the Philippines because we think they're doing some really cute stuff on autonomous vehicles. Yeah. And we want to be part of that. And actually for us, we think that's a better market in the future than that one. That's cool, but all those things are going to happen over decades, not It's years. not going to be quick. Yeah. Well, one last question for the day then. We've had chlorinated chicken. I want you both to give me an example of a ridiculous thing which is going to enter the public com- com- conversation over, um, uh, over the next six months. There's, there's got to be something. There's, there's hundreds, I suspect, and that's going to be the, the boom bit. I mean, I quite like the way things like Open Skies has, uh, has got people going now because what's lovely is nobody had heard of it Mm. the idea got introduced into the public consciousness with kind of Ryanair talking about it basically everybody is now commenting on it despite the fact that nobody has read the agreement or understands what it is Mm. Uh, so they're interviewed on Radio 4 either this morning or or yesterday which immediately said ah well of course the problems are X, Y and Z and you think no they're not no you've you've misunderstood actually what this does and I think that's what we're going to see Lots of. I, do you know what? I've got a funny feeling. I've got a funny feeling we're going to see some sort of regulation. Some, do you know, like the way France only uh, uh, regulates how many French songs has to be on French radio? <laughs> well, I think once the main English language country leaves, there's going to be some sort of regulation on how many English language songs are going to be in, in, in the EU. I've just got a funny <laughs> feeling that that's going to be going I'll give you one. I think yeah. it's been in the news before, but I think it'll come up at some point. I think football is going to be used as an example Ooh. for something. I think the movement of players, um, you know, mm-hmm. movement of funds between clubs, you know, involvement in different leagues. I think, I think that'll that'll be representative European of some competition, issues. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, I, think, I, I think that's a pretty good one. That'll come up at some point. That's it, because European competition is nothing to do with the EU, but the free movement of the free movement of people and yeah. free movement of capital mm. rules particularly help and support all that to happen. That would be much harder to do UK, uh, UK, US. You'd very, very hard to see that kind of movement of players. Mm-hmm. Uh, the volume. Again, it happens, odd ones. 
but actually the, by the time you know, there are levies against that we've seen China recently has put 100% um, well, in, in, tariff on international football players coming mm-hmm. into China so you know this stuff, they? yeah so this stuff does happen and people kind of think oh that's nothing to do with this thing nothing to do with trade you're yeah. right it's not but the point is the EU agreement is much much broader than just trade Excellent. Right. Well, thank you as always for listening. Thank you for following us on Twitter and leaving us those iTunes reviews. Just just before we go, anything happening in the Chamber of Commerce this this week? Oh, there's lots happening. We've just got a new membership offer actually that we've launched with uh, some new helplines and 24-hour helplines for companies on tax and VAT and uh, HR and horrifying they've forgotten the last one mm. uh, but go and take our website uh, dmchamber.co.uk forward slash chamber protect great new set of services that you can get from that and just a quick mes- message to our listener Graham Pollard who is a little bit up- upset about our levels I guarantee I will try and sort them out this episode uh, we don't want to lose you as a subscriber <laughs> so until next week uh, we will see you then goodbye Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.